Good to see y'all this morning. Well, um, I love the chance just to get to open God's Word. That's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Um, Hey, I'm excited about uh, a lot of things, celebrating a lot of things, but uh, if you were here with us last week at 11, one of the biggest things that I'm celebrating is I had like the coolest, most amazing, beautiful opportunity ever uh, to just get to I'm going to try not to cry because I cried seven times last week. So, uh, but just to get to stand beside um, my daughter Taylor uh, and baptize her as she proclaimed her love for Jesus. It was the coolest thing. If you weren't here, I just kind of wanted to point to that uh, this morning and and share that with you. Um, Amazing. I don't know that there's a greater joy uh, than that. Um, The second thing that I'm celebrating this morning is uh, that I get to teach through Hebrews 8 and not 7, because last week, uh, I mean, full applause uh, to Craig. I'm grateful for Craig, for his heart, his wisdom to walk us through chapter 7, but that is a, that's a big chapter, um, and, and I think 8, you're going to see, we kind of get uh, some beautiful, uh, not closure, but, but beautiful summary of where the author of Hebrews is going. So, Grateful for Hebrews 8, grateful for my girl, um, and just excited to be here with y'all this morning. Y'all ready to go? Okay, here we go. Uh, Over the last couple weeks, we've been studying uh, Hebrews, and the letter of Hebrews deals really with believers who were feeling this pressure and persecution all around them, all right? Pressure, persecution growing, maybe some of them even going as far as having second thoughts on their faith, like going even as far as questioning whether or not uh, this was the the way that they should have gone, the, the right decision. And so Hebrews is dealing with that. Craig said this a couple times, but the author sets out essentially to show us how Jesus is greater and how Jesus is better. Greater and better are kind of our terms that we are describing. So obviously greater and better, there is something in comparison that Jesus is greater and better than. And so the author of Hebrews is walking us through this whole thing. So this morning, we continue in Hebrews 8. And I want to kind of give you just the three things that Hebrews 8 really focuses on, all right? When you look at Hebrews 8, you have these three things. So essentially, if you remember Cliff Notes, right, if you were around in the 90s and high school in the 90s, we had Cliff Notes, and it was like the thing you read to make it a whole lot easier. This, uh, I want to show you this. So three things that Hebrews 8 talks about. We're going to get into the great high priest. We're going to get into the shadow system, which I'll explain here in a little bit. And we're going to get into this new covenant, that the old covenant is gone, and Jesus is the author of this new covenant. All right? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone that has just drawn out really long? Like you kind of get to the point where they are talking and you have neglected to talk in quite some time and now they're just talking at you essentially. And this thought sometimes may, might pop into your mind where you think, where you think, where is this going exactly? Or what are you trying to tell me here? Okay, let me give you a couple scenarios. Maybe we can kind of help each other out here. I'll even confess some things. I like doing that when I jump on the stage. But okay, so, so let's start this scenario. Wives, maybe, maybe about husbands, okay? So 
Um, wives, maybe your husband comes to you. I do this with Janice all the time. Like if there's a new woodworking tool that, you know, like I really want. And sometimes I'll go to Janice and I'll, I'll feel like I need to draw this thing out like really long. And so then I'll start to get into, hey, here's what this tool does. Okay, here's where you would use this tool in the process of building something. Here's uh, why I need this thing. And she gets this glazed over look and she kind of goes, what are you, where are you going with this? Like, would you just get to the point? And of course, then I tell her how much it is and that's where the difficulty comes in, okay? So sometimes husbands, maybe for us, we're trying to justify a purchase or something like that. Wives, maybe you go to your husband and you're talking about like, oh, you know, maybe she said this to me and she did this. What does that mean if she did that? Or, or what should, how should I take that? Or what should I do with that? And husbands, you kind of go, I don't, what's, maybe you're watching the football game and you, what's the point here? Like, can we just, there's a football game on. We would never do that, right? Husbands, that would never be something that we do. Or maybe you're listening to a sermon, not here, but another sermon somewhere else. And in your mind, you go, hey, um, we're 45 minutes into this thing. What are you talking about? Like, where's the point? What is the point here? Again, not here. And you would absolutely not think that this morning or right at this moment right now. But um, in a world where time seems limited and we want things as fast as possible, there's something in us that screams, get to the point. I don't know if y'all have that. Maybe you don't have that. But there's something in us that screams, get to the point. So I don't know if you felt that. Recently, we were, a couple weeks ago, we were at Fuel Weekend. And every time we start those weekends, I gather our leaders together. There's like some instructions, some directions, some things that I have to give our leaders. And so we're sitting there, I'm giving these instructions. They're going a little bit long probably because I have to give the details. And one of my leaders, and you know what, I'm going to give him a pass because he's been one of our leaders. He's probably been to 12 retreats. So he's hearing the same thing for the 12th time. And one of the leaders in the backs, he just kind of gives me this motion. He's like, does this. Okay. Now, if you don't know what that means, or if somebody's ever done that to you, it means land the plane. I found that out later. <laughs> land the plane. Like, hey, Troy, like, Let's, we got to get on with this thing. We got to retreat and just finish it up, okay? So the point, it's that point where we think you have danced around this long enough. Would you just say what you want me to hear? And then comes those all important, incredible words we've been waiting for. Here is the point. And even in a sermon, the pastor might say this, and I'm not a huge fan of this, but the pastor might say, hey, if you don't hear anything, hear this. Have you all heard that? If you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. And to me, that's kind of permission just to check out. So I don't really like that phrase, but it's kind of, the, it's this idea of here is the point. And I want to let you know that this morning in Hebrews 8, we have arrived right here. The first seven chapters of Hebrews are a lot. They are so beautiful. They're building to this point, but they are heavy and it is a lot. And in chapter 8, we get this summary. I think the author recognizes this, which is why he speaks these all-important words to us. If you got your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. 1 through 2. I want to start here uh, this morning. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Here's what it says. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. So there we have it. We've got this, this point, all right? He's 
spoken a lot up to this. He's talked into the lives of these believers and the things that they're dealing with, the things that they're struggling with. Maybe some of them are, maybe they don't fully understand where he's going with this. Maybe they're tracking with him, but he gets to this point and he says, listen, here is the main point. All right, so I want to take some time. I really like doing this. I like breaking down a passage of scripture. I like taking the, uh, the phrases, and this is, this is like youth ministry right here. This just sums it up. We need colors and things like that. But I like breaking down a passage of scripture, really getting an idea what each part means, what each word is telling us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. When you hear, when you see, here is the main point. It's this phrase of transition. It's this phrase that tells us to prepare for what's next, write it down, take notes, think about it, consider it. All right, so before we go any further, we know that what he's about to say next is a, hey, don't miss this. And then he says this, we have a high priest. We have a high priest. Now, did you hear the one word in here? The first word is this word, we. means you and me. It's a word, it's a personal word. All right? He's talking directly to us. It's the sinners who've recognized their sin and their need for Jesus. You have it. You recognize the, your sin. You recognize who Jesus is. You have it. You have him as a high priest. He is ours. He belongs to you and to me. But not only that, we have a high priest. We have the most distinguished high priest that there ever was. You see, the people back then would have had a priest, somebody who interceded in a different way. But what he's saying here is the main point is that we now have a high priest, a superior priest, the most amazing priest that has ever been on the earth. And so I want to jump back, Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. Craig talked about this a little bit last week, but um, we didn't fully cover the end of it. And I'm glad we didn't because the end of it leads into this passage of Scripture. I think an important question for us to ask is, what is it that sets Jesus apart as the great high priest? What is it that sets Jesus apart as the great high priest? You think about these people at this point, they would have had a priest Maybe they knew a priest. Maybe they, uh, maybe they had gone to the same one to offer uh, their, a sacrifice for their sins. So they would have known a priest. But, but what is it that sets Jesus apart as the great high priest? All right, Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. And then we'll walk, about, walk through some of these supremes. It says this, There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and for all to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weaknesses. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. In these passages of scripture, what you have is the differences between 
priests, human priests on the earth, and Jesus as the great high priest, all right? So I want us to walk through four of these. There's probably more in there, but I want us to stick to four because I think these kind of stair-step down. Four supremacies of Jesus as the high priest. Like this is, these are some of the reasons that Jesus takes the, the role as the high priest. Number one is this, Jesus is sinless, okay? We see this in verse 26 uh, of 7. He says, he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy, blameless, and unstained by sin. Listen, no other priest on earth could claim this. Priests, yes, they were, they were set apart by God. They were called by God, but they were still found with sin. Those priests still had sin in their life. But Jesus was different. He was a different high priest. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ the first thing is that Jesus, the first supremacy is that Jesus is sinless. It set him apart from all the other priests. And second, moves from this, this idea, this, this um, truth that Jesus is sinless into Jesus is freed to be the sacrifice. Jesus is freed to be the sacrifice. In 27a, the first part of 27, we see unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. Other priests offered sacrifices because they had their own sins that they had to deal with. And Jesus is different because he came to the table sinless and perfect. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for other people. He was freed to be the sacrifice for us because he was perfect and without blemish. The third one is this. The third supremacy is that Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. In the second part of 27, we see, but Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. Because of the intensity of his sacrifice, he was enough. Because he was sinless, he was enough. Priests before were constantly offering sacrifices over and over, but Jesus offered himself once and for all. Hebrews 10, 12 says this, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. The fourth is this, his ministry is forever. Verse 28, the law appointed high priests, but were limited by human weaknesses. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. His ministry, Jesus' ministry as our great high priest is forever. The weaknesses of man is that they were, there was an end to the priesthood. Human priests, priests who were on earth, they were very different because their ministry at some point would come to an end through their death. Eventually, they would be done as a minister, as a priest because of their passing. But Jesus' ministry is forever, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So here's where we are in our passage of scripture. We'll come back to the, to the color one. Also, Jenny has been so gracious in all the scripture that we're going to be going through. You're doing great, Jenny. Um, so the main point, this is the main point, is that you and me have the supreme high priest that did what no other priest was capable of doing. The main point is this. You and me have the supreme high priest 
that did what no priest was capable of doing. Then we go to this next part of our passage. It says, uh, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majestic God. Now, there's so much in this simple phrase that Jesus would sit down at the, hand, at the right hand of the throne of the majestic God in heaven. I want to talk about this idea of being seated at the right hand of God. We see that in other passages of Scripture about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. I think there's four things that uh, we can, um, truths about this part of this passage of Scripture. I think it shows us a lot of things. The first is this. It shows us this idea of completion. It shows us this idea of completion. If you're at home, uh, maybe husbands, wives, uh, if you're at home and you finish something, you complete the task that you had set out to uh, that day, all right, typically I think what happens, or at least for me, if I finish the, the yard work that my wife asked me to do, or the honeydew list, typically when I finish it, I'll check it off, I'll walk over to the couch, and I'll sit down. I will be seated as a sign of completion. I'm done. I've accomplished the things that I needed to accomplish. In the same way, when we see Jesus seated at the right hand, we know that it is finished. When he came, he came to do and accomplished what he, his mission that he sought out to accomplish. John 19, 28 through 30, this is where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says this, or, or it says this, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Listen to this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When it says that we have a high priest who seated at the right hand of God, he is seated because it is completed. He, he's seated because the work was complete. It was accomplished. He finished what God sent him here to do. The other thing that we see is, I think we see belonging in this. When, when, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we see belonging. There's a sense of belonging when you take a seat. All right. If, you're in, if you go to somebody's house and they say to you, make yourself comfortable, make yourself comfortable. I don't know, but I don't know about y'all, I'm going to sit down. Like I'm going to the most comfortable seat in the living room and I'm going to have a seat. It's permission to belong in the space that you're at. It's permission to sit down and belong right there. And this is big because if we see that, then, then when, he had, when he was seated at the right hand of God, we recognize that the right hand of God is exactly where Jesus belonged. Like that's where he found belonging and that's where God desired him to be. But I want to take this a step further for, for you and for me. Jesus found belonging at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God. But look at what Ephesians, I think Sonny referenced this just a minute ago. Look at what Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Listen to 6, listen to this. So think about it. If Jesus finds belonging at the right hand of God, he's seated at the right hand of God. For he raised us from the dead, Talking about you and me along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united 
with Christ Jesus. Jesus found belonging seated next to his father, and he invites us into that as well. It is where, if we are in Christ, it is where we belong. It's where we belong. The third thing that we see in being seated at the right hand of God, we see some more incredible insight. We see this idea of equality, that Jesus was equal to God. When he was on earth, he was fully man, but he was fully God. He was equal to his father. At the right, when, when you hear, see this idea of being at the right, back then this was compared to this word honor. It, it, it came with such honor to be seated at the right hand of somebody. So we see honor here. 1 Peter 3, 22 says, Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. He is seated in that place of honor The theology behind this is that our high priest is fully God, fully God, and he's our high priest. The last thing that we see is this idea of intercession. It confirms that that Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand. When we see this, this phrase that he's seated at the right hand of God, it confirms that Jesus is there interceding for you and for me. So when somebody heard this passage that Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God, their mind would probably go to, uh, if, if, they were, if they were a Jew, their mind would go to the Sanhedrin. They would think about the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish ruling council of 70 elders. And when the members sat in judgment, when they were together, you would have one presiding judge. Okay? You would have one presiding judge over Whoever it was, if it was a person, if it was a situation, you would have one presiding judge. And and with that presiding judge, you would have a scribe. You would have two scribes or secretaries. One scribe would be on the left, and the other scribe would be on the right of the presiding judge. And so what's interesting is the, the scribe on the left, their whole job the whole thing that they, were, that they were there for was to hand out accusations. Like they were in charge of accusations. If somebody came and brought this and they judged them guilty, they would be in charge of handing out the accusations, all right, the punishment for the wrong that was done. The scribe to the right, their job was, was acquittals. It was fully about releasing. It was about Cleaning the slate, all right? That was their job. If they found them not guilty, then they were responsible for offering freedom. So I want to make sure we have this correct, this, the correct perspective this morning and we understand the gravity of our high priest is seated at the right hand of God. Our Jesus sits at the right, okay? He's not on the left handing out punishment and condemning. We serve a God and have a high priest that desires to give us freedom and release us and set us free. And he is interceding on behalf of his children, seated at the right hand of God. The passage goes on and it says this, and he, the high priest, ministers in the heavenly tabernacle the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. 
Right? I actually want to keep reading Hebrews 8, 5. And I know what you're thinking. We're um, only through Hebrews 8, 1, and 2 right now, and we're pretty good into this thing. I promise you we're going we're gonna to keep going. Okay. Um, Hebrews 8, 5 gives us a little insight into this heavenly tabernacle. All right, and the difference here. Hebrews 8, 5 says this. They serve in a system of worship. All right, and this is talking about Old Testament. This is talking about the old uh, covenant that they had with God. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Okay? So the difference here, they serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow. This is Old Testament, Old Covenant that God had with his people, the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. Okay? It is only a shadow of the real one in heaven. So he's going to talk about a heavenly tabernacle uh, is what we're going to go through here. So three times in the book of Exodus, God instructs Moses to create the tabernacle exactly how God instructs exactly to the detail, the specification that God gives to Moses. And I don't know if you've ever studied this, like studied the tabernacle or looked through it, the detail and how specific God gets when he, God gives Moses when he is creating this is amazing. Like the detail is incredible. And he says three times exactly as I have instructed I don't think that there is much detail given this much anywhere else in Scripture. When we look at the account of creation, we don't even see, we don't see the, de- the exact detail that God was going into when he went into the earthly tabernacle. We don't see this when God created man. I'm sure it was there. I'm sure he was thinking it. But he doesn't give us that account and the detail like he gives Moses. Maybe even Noah in the ark. Or or what about church in the New Testament? There is so much detail in the tabernacle. So I would ask, I I think the interesting question is why? Why so detailed? Why would God get so specific on the building of this earthly temple? And I would say it's probably because of his presence in the true heavenly sanctuary. Think about this for a second. God in heaven is giving Moses these instructions on the tabernacle. But where is God standing? At this point, he is in the true heavenly sanctuary. And so he's looking around at the beauty you can imagine. I mean, can you just imagine like how incredible the, the, the real heavenly sanctuary is? You look at what happened at the, the tabernacle in Exodus and all the detail that went in there and the, be- the types of wood, the, um, the jewels, the uh, types of material and fabric that he, and he had them use. I mean, you imagine the tabernacle was probably beautiful. But God was standing in the real. This was a shadow or a copy of the real. So as God is standing there in the heavenly tabernacle, just imagine what he's seeing. And as he's seeing this, he's relaying a message of what they should build, what Moses should build, and how he should build it, based on the things that he's seeing around him, okay? And, and not only that, but I imagine that the resources that are in heaven are very different from what he was describing for them to use on earth. Like, I mean, I, probably just 
the amount times of beauty that, uh, that he's seeing in heaven doesn't compare to the things that he had them use here on earth. I want you to think about it, think about it this way. I don't know if you remember um, open book tests. You remember those? Carson, you still have open book tests? They're what? Those are the hardest? Carson, those should be the easiest. They were for me. They're hard? Okay. John William, open, easy. Okay. Y'all can talk. Um, John, open book tests, right? In the 90s, we had open book tests. I loved them. When I heard that phrase, I'm like, let's go. Okay. I can do that. Okay. The regular tests, not so much. The open book tests, I can do an open book test. Why? Because you can go into the exact detail of what the teacher is looking for. You know why? Because it's right there. You've got your book right in front of you. The guy that takes an open book test with no book, I don't know what he's thinking, okay? But think about it. He's, He's looking exactly at the answer. And when we think about God giving direction for the tabernacle, he's standing in it. It's like he's taking an open book test. He's, he's communicating to Moses, here is a little bit of what I'm seeing. This is how I want you to build it. This is a copy, a shadow of what I'm thinking, all right? I mean, we can conclude that God is standing in the middle of the true temple, and he gives instructions based on that. Detailed instructions allow us to see importance of what he's communicating here. In verse 5, it says that they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy. It's a shadow of the real one in heaven. It's a shadow. The tabernacle that they had in the Old Testament, the beauty that, that these guys built of the tabernacle, is only a shadow of the real one in heaven. Think about this. A shadow has no meaning apart from what it is the shadow of, right? A shadow has no meaning apart from what it is the shadow of. It exists only as evidence of the real thing. Think about that. It ex- a shadow exists only as evidence of, of the real thing. In the mornings when I wake up, um, I have this spot downstairs in our living room that I'll sit. And I got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and so if I want some time with Jesus in the morning, it's got to be really early, okay? Uh, because they'll come down and they'll blow that right up. And so I've got my spot uh, in the morning, so I'll wake up early, about 45 minutes to an hour before the girls get up. And I'll take a seat at my spot, spend some time in in prayer, um, and uh, just reading some scripture. And so when I sit down, if you can imagine my chair being here, we have these stairs that come down into the living room, and all the bedrooms are upstairs, and it's kind of open on each side of the stairs. And so in the mornings, um, when the girls wake up, I'm sitting here, and all of a sudden, I see the light, the hallway light flip on, okay? And then I see just a shadow of some, of of one of them. It's not Janice. She sleeps in way, but anyway, um, one of the girls coming down the stairs, and I just see the shadow against the wall right here, and I see the shadow on the floor. And I get really excited when they wake up, because it's kind of like, ooh, who woke up first? You know, who's the first one? Who wins this morning? Or loses. Uh, Who wins this morning? Who's the first one up? And so I'm looking at the shadow. I'm hearing the footsteps coming down the stairs. And then all of a sudden, I see who it is. And it's, oh, good morning, sweetheart. How are you doing? How'd you sleep? And she's like, fine. And then watches TV. But anyway, um, and so you finally see the real thing, all right? 
when the real comes into view, immediately you're drawn to the person, right? If you see a shadow at the beginning and then you see the real person, you don't keep looking at the shadow. You don't, you don't stay with your focus on the shadow. You immediately move to the real. You immediately move to the real. You're drawn to the person and the shadow no longer matters. Isn't that true? John Piper says this, the great, and this is about seven and eight, the great and overarching point of this text at the end of chapter seven and the beginning of chapter eight is that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who came in the world as the son of God, lived a sinless life, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people, rose to everlasting life at the right hand of the majesty of God, and there loves us and prays for us and bids us draw near to God through him. He did not come to fit into the old system of priestly sacrifices. He came to fulfill them and to end them. He is the reality. They were the shadow and the copy of the reality. When the reality comes, the shadow passes away. The shadow passes away. So Hebrews 8, 6 leads us to the rest. All right, and we're going to conclude here in just a minute. Hebrews 8, 6 leads us to the rest of what he's talking about with the old and the new covenant. This is what it says. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, the shadow. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And so my question that I would ask us this morning is what changes in the new covenant and what makes the new better than the old, right? A lot of times if we've got the old model of something and we want the new, there better be something, it better do something greater than the previous model. Janice the other night was like, hey, my, uh, I think I need a new phone. And I'm like, sweetheart, your iPhone 6 is great. Like, don't worry about it. It's fine. And she's like, I need a new iPhone. All right. And so we're looking it up and she's like, oh, wow, that new phone does that. You know, oh, it's it recognizes your face. I'm like, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about that. Um, the, old, the new does something far should do something far greater and better than the old. This is why our focus is on Jesus as the as greater and better. In verse eight through 12, I believe there are at least uh, eight differences of at least eight differences of the old covenant and what the new covenant brings to the table. All right, eight of them, and you're welcome. We're not going to go through all of them. We're going to go through one. All right, I want to focus on just one this morning. Hebrews eight ten says this: This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will write them on their hearts. I will put my laws in their minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. So we'll kind of close here. What does this mean for our life of worship? All right, what does Hebrews 8 tell us? What does this main point tell us about for you and me and our life of worship here on earth? The new covenant or the reality instead of the shadow fulfills and brings to end several things, all right? The reality, Jesus has come, we're living in the reality, brings several things. It ends several things. It ends the physical center of Old Testament worship, the tabernacle and the temple, all right? Because, because written uh, in our minds and in our hearts, it brings to an end official priesthood, 
All right, we now have Jesus, his sacrifice once and for all in heaven, uh, on the, seated at the right hand of God, who is fighting for you and for me. It has ended sacrificial offerings as they did in the Old Testament, dietary laws, seasonal acts of atonement. It's moved the focus of our life of worship to an internal thing instead of an external. All right, hang with me for a second. Internal instead of external. Put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And get this, the spiritual internal is so important that now all of external life becomes our expression of this internal worship. Okay? Internal forces the external. Okay? It's not just about the external, it's about the internal. Romans 12:1 says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. All right? Do you hear that that word because links those two. You do the first because of the second, because of all he has done for you, because, because he has written these things on your heart. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In everything external, we do it because of this. And the reason for this radical change from external to internal is mission-driven. The Old Testament was mainly a come-and-see religion. The New Testament is a go-and-tell relationship. It's a go-and-tell relationship. I want to close this morning right here. Matthew 13, 44. I love this passage of Scripture. Jesus kind of gives this example to his people about the kingdom of heaven, to those who are around him. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Listen to this. I want you to think about the internal versus the external. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, in his excitement, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Now let's think about this for a second. Do you see the difference here? Then if he had bought the field hoping that he might one day find it or hoping that one day it might come, He didn't do that. The internal, his internal affected his external. In his excitement, something happened in him internally, and the external is after the internal. The old covenant says you must do this, but the new covenant says there's an internal connection that in our excitement to what we get to do. The shadow, the copy is gone. The real is here. The real is here. So the question that Reese uh, answered at the beginning, what is the personal covenant that God has with me, is a big question. As we think about Jesus as our high priest, next week we'll continue, finish with Hebrews 9, uh, 8, 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Next week we'll move into Hebrews 9 and we'll talk about some of these differences. We'll continue in this idea that the shadow is gone, the copy is gone, and the new is here. Hey, before we pray, I want to um, invite you as we continue in worship. Um, we have communion in the corners. Um, just want to invite you, if that's something that you would want to take and celebrate with Jesus this morning, I invite you to do that. We also have a couple that will be over uh, here on my left 
um, that if you need prayer this morning, you got something going on in your life, and we can pray for you, we would love, we would love to do that um, this morning. Let's pray. Father, thanks for um, the truth. Thanks for the truth, the point, the main point. God, that we have a high priest. We have somebody who sits at the right hand of God, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand and is interceding for us, who's bringing us freedom. Father, when we mess up, you bring freedom to us. Thank you for that. Thank you, God, that you are in the true sanctuary right now. We no longer have to look to a copy, a shadow system, Father, but you are living in it right now. And, um, and God, I just pray that you would help us to understand deeper and deeper what that means for us. God, as we are here on this earth, help us to understand how the internal affects the external. God, continue to draw us closer and closer to you and to who you are so that we would live this out wherever we go, work, school, wherever you have us, Father, that we would live out our relationship with you and that it would be seen as a light on the hill by others. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.